2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. Today is former President Jimmy Carter's 97th birthday. He has spent his life working to secure peace, reduce poverty, fight disease, and protect the environment, no matter the political cost. Last year, a documentary was released exploring a lesser-known aspect of President Carter, his intense love of music. Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, chronicles the profound impact musicians such as Bob Dylan, Greg Allman, and Willie Nelson had on President Carter. When the film was released last year... I spoke with director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell. And to celebrate President Carter's birthday on City Lights, we'll listen back to that interview later this hour. First, when the Decatur Book Festival returns this weekend... The authors Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel will talk about their new young adult book, Why We Fly. The story is about two teenage girls, one black, one white, whose friendship is tested by an act of rebellion against systemic racism. The co-authors join us now via Zoom. Kimberly Jones and Gili Siegel, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you
1: so much. We're so excited to be back.
0: Yes, we are on with the voice of a generation. (laughs) Oh,
2: Kimberly, thank you. We last spoke in 2019 ahead of your book, I'm Not Dying With You Tonight, which was inspired by the unrest in Baltimore after the shooting of Freddie Gray in 2015, though your novel was set in Atlanta. That book became a New York Times bestseller, popular among adults as well as teens. How does Why We Fly continue your work together?
1: So Why We Fly is another story inspired by real life events. This book inspired by the Kennesaw State cheerleading team that a number of years ago, inspired by Colin Kaepernick themselves, took a knee during the national anthem at a college football game and subsequently was removed from the field. They were prohibited from returning to the field during the season. A number of them lost their scholarships. There has been ongoing litigation to this day related to that action that they took. And As we do with many other things, we process by writing and we wanted to tell a story and think through why and how, what kind of courage those teens had to speak up and stand up for something that they believed in, understanding that there might be consequences that the community might not be supportive of their actions. So I think thematically it's related. It's also set in Atlanta, this time suburban Atlanta, thematically related, but different characters this time around.
2: The story unfolds in alternating chapters told by the two friends, Eleanor, Lenny, and Chanel, who goes by Nellie. Please tell us about how you, as authors, divide the workload.
0: You know, with each book, we have a different system. So with the first book, we initially both took responsibility for the character that was closest to our own personal lived experience. And then we did our edits side by side because the voices were so prominent in each other's chapters for consistency of voice. But for this one, We wrote the entire thing sitting side by side. So we contributed equally. The other thing is we lean into our strengths and weaknesses. Geely is way better at far more skilled, educated, and learned in terms of the structure of a book, in terms of her beautiful Interiority into what the characters are thinking and feeling, and her description as to like what the room looks like, giving you the feeling of, of where we are and what it looks like and the texture of everything. Because I come from a screenwriting background, my strong suit is a dialogue and pacing, making sure that we are not lingering in a space for too long and making sure that the characters sound like real people and not 15 year old sound- like 40 euros, even though they're <laughs> like in a high pressure situation. So because we know that about each other, we kind of let the other person take the lead on their strengths and where we're weaker at, where like we concede to the other person's ideas.
2: When you spoke about from your own life's experiences, I should add for listeners who may not know that Kimberly, you are black and Gili, you are white. So your characters you write from the perspective of those characters from your own experience
0: that's correct but definitely none of our work is memoir in any way (laughs) oh uh, but you know we we draw on our our cultural lived experiences to give viewpoint and the reason I say that is because people always ask us are you Lena or are you are you, more like <laughs> you jokingly say we keep writing each other like my characters are more like Geely and her characters are more like me so we think that's funny.
2: Oh, that is funny and certainly shows affinity for one another. <laughs> Will you describe Eleanor and Chanel, or shall I call them by their nicknames?
1: I think I think of them as Lenny and Nellie because we, they, you have to earn a nickname for Kim and I. So by now we've lived with this book long enough that they've earned their nicknames from us.
2: Okay. Would you describe Lenny and Nellie?
1: Sure. So Lenny and Nellie are both seniors in high school when the book begins. At the beginning of the book, Lenny, who is white and Jewish, I also want to add that in because Lenny's Jewish identity is an important part of her journey in this book, starts out recovering from two consecutive concussions which have jeopardized her cheer career they are serious cheer athletes and hoping that this is the year that they finally take their team to nationals and Lenny is also falling for the quarterback of the football team uh, and is a little I think starstruck by him and the very start of the book Kim do you want to talk about Nellie for a minute
0: Yeah, she has, she's the kid that we all knew in high school that had a plan, which is why I laugh and say like, I write Geely, I don't write myself because I wasn't that kid, but Geely was. Um, (laughs) She does not want to deter from the plan and is very ambitious and is acutely aware that the level of ambition that she has in terms of what she wants to do with her career and what type of education she wants to get requires a certain level of strategy as well as consistent um, and so she is not interested in life, you know, doing anything to disrupt that. But life just continues to do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, Nellie is still in high school, but she's already got her graduate schools chosen. She will settle for an MBA at no less than the Wharton School of Business or Harvard. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, she's that kid who's sure that life starts in the next, right? Mm-hmm. The next place I go, life starts for her in college, and in doing so, she's missing out a little bit, I think, on her, on her teen years and her high school experience. But I certainly identify with that a fair, a fair amount. I was a lot like Nellie. <laughs>
2: Well, Nellie's family is very well-to-do. They live in a beautiful home. Her parents are involved with high-status community activities. Lenny is from a more modest home, at least that was my impression. And her parents are very supportive, but she is not the outstanding student that Nellie is and you mentioned the serious concussions she mm-hmm. suffered yes. from falls during practice you too seem to have a lot of expertise in cheerleading what did you <laughs> okay yeah what did you know about cheerleading before writing this book i know nothing about cheerleading but i felt like i learned a lot
0: <laughs> we knew A lot less about cheerleading when we first started writing. I I was a cheerleader in middle school and oddly not for my school team because i have like tried out for my school team the first day and the coach seemed too harsh and I was like, no thanks. And so I was on the cheerleading team. Oddly enough, the alderman, I grew up in Chicago and, and uh, I know some people have city councilmen. We had aldermen. Yes. But the alderman in my ward, the 34th ward, created a cheerleading team for himself so that when he would do like, when he would be campaigning and when he would do speaking engagements and stuff like that, he would bring his Cheerleading team, which was like a bunch of like middle school girls, and I was one of them. So through middle school, I was on the Alderman Lemuel Austin cheerleading team, but we never did any. Definitely, we're not a competitive team like the team that uh, Nellie and Lenny are on. So we were not doing this level of stunt. And so, part of what we do with our books is always to expand our research beyond just the subject matter, but also for the details of the book. And so, Geely had connections in the cheer community, and we just. Pick their brains and had them beta read our book. And Gili can tell you more about some of their discoveries, but things we had in the original manuscript, they were like, if it's a team cheering at this level, you guys are giving them very basic tools. You're going to have to get more complex.
2: Ah, there is teenage romance in this story. Would you tell us about the guy named Samuel, whose nickname is Three? <laughs> oh, three.
1: Yes. Yeah, so three is the star quarterback and a truly extraordinary athlete. You know, one of the kids that people start talking about very early in their high school or even middle school careers as, you know, a future NFLer, a future Hall of Famer. And he is also a senior in high school. He's also a kid with a plan and a lot of family expectations on him. His family is really counting on him to make it for a variety of reasons. And he and Lenny kind of fall for each other. They're both recovering from injuries at the beginning of the book and they bond based on that. And he's a little too smooth for his own good, I think, um, certainly for Lenny's own good in this book, but he's also struggling with the weight of expectations and navigating a really difficult situation for himself. Some of the early readers have sort of commented on, on Three not being a great boyfriend, which I'm not sure he is, but he's also a teenager in his own right. And I'm not sure he has the tools to handle the situation anymore maturely than he does.
2: Well, his father is very strict and constantly reminding him of a career in the NFL. The father seems harsh and the kid is very
0: respectful of it. Yeah, I think Three has just decided that what he's great at is playing and that the mechanics of it and the next steps of it and the career path of it, since his dad is so invested in it, he's like, I'll just let him have that and trust him. But I think he also feels the pressure of this has been what his dad has done for every one of his children. And it, they all kind of like, out his two older brothers and so three knows that he's kind of his dad's last hope and that his family has put in an extreme amount of economic investment into this NFL dream and three has come the closest out of the siblings and so three is kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel for this family and so he feels the pressure to maintain that and allow himself to be used in that way.
2: Hmm authors Kimberly Jones and Gili Siegel. We'll return to more of our conversation about their new book, Why We Fly, in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the young adult authors Kimberly Jones and Geely Siegel. We're talking about their new book, Why We Fly. And here, Siegel discusses what the character Aunt Rhonda brings to the story.
1: Aunt Rhonda is amazing. We make bets on who fan favorite characters might be because with our first book we were really wrong, right? We there was a character in there that we had no idea people were going to love, and they loved. I think we're betting on Aunt Rhonda being a fan favorite. Oh,
2: this she's time. my favorite.
1: <laughs> so Aunt Rhonda is three's maternal aunt and she's a professor at Georgia State University and she I think is the voice one of the adults the guiding light adults that we have put in this book for the girls our first novel really didn't reflect adults that were supportive and mentors for the characters and intentionally we wanted to put a different picture on the page this time around so she I think introduces to Lenny and Nelly, the notion that social action is something that they can engage in even at their age. Though they are young, she inspires them to think that they can do this too.
2: Even though Three's father is very dismissive of her, the students' friends are in awe of her. She has a bestseller. She's appeared on The Daily Show. And she talks about Cody Knight. You write about some of the real-life athletes who demonstrated against racism. John Carlos and Tommy Smith raising the Black Power fist at the 1968 Olympics. And more recently, as you said, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee before NFL games. Colin Kaepernick becomes Cody Knight in this book, but I see you kept the initials. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I wasn't overthinking that.
0: Uh, No, not. You you were not. (laughs) You were not. And the beauty of it is because it's fiction, we get to write a version for him that unfortunately he didn't get to live, which is that he maintains his job in the NFL in in our version of this story. But I think without question, people are going to know instantly, like, Cody Knight is Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we get to write him in a way of having made it out on the other side. But the other thing is, is that we intentionally wrote this book, you know, a few years prior to the civil unrest of 2020 because we wanted to show the actual view. If this if this book is going to be a time capsule of this time that people will use, you know, hopefully 40 years from now to talk about what was happening at this time. We want it to be authentic and the original view. Of how people saw Colin Kaepernick, or in this case, Cody Knight. And we thought it was better that way than writing it now with a more modern spin where a lot of major sports owners, teams, even the leagues themselves have turned around and found themselves having to support these actions. And so yeah, we we wanted to write kind of our fairy tale version of Colin and let him keep his job.
2: Oh, we're at right on this. Oh. Without revealing the end of this story, avoiding all spoilers, can you talk about the course of events, or at least how the events that unfold impact Lenny and Nellie?
1: Lenny and Nellie i think start out a little bit on top of the world start of senior year they have high hopes and expectations then they take a knee during the anthem their school is not supportive and the community is really not supportive and Nellie, this isn't really a spoiler, but Nellie is punished more harshly than any of the other cheerleaders, which raises questions about how black students versus white students are disciplined in schools and the disparate punishments that are handed out to students. But it really sets them on a journey of figuring out for Lenny, what's the difference between being an ally and being an accomplice? So I think Lenny would like to be an ally and support this social justice action, but she has a hard time seeing the disparate impact, seeing that her consequences are different than her peers do. And she spends a lot of time trying to determine what the right next move is and tell people how to do things and what to do next, not perhaps recognizing that hers is not the voice that should be leading in this instance. And without spoiling anything, she goes on a bit of a journey to learn that if she isn't sacrificing something the same way, being an accomplice, then she needs to approach the social justice movement that she wants to participate
2: in in a different fashion. I think you summed that up beautifully. In addition to the social justice issues and a closer look at teenage ambition, I had the feeling you were also looking at sports in general and football in particular with the fact that Lenny is recovering from serious concussions. Was that important for you in learning more about cheerleading?
0: It was very important for us. And one of the things that we discovered is that there are actually more insurance claims on concussions for cheerleaders than football. Um, which is a conversation that no one is having. But this book overall is our ode to athlete activists. You know, we honor people like Billie Jean King and LeBron James and Colin Kaepernick, Megan Rapino, and, and so many that came before them. Um, we discovered that there was a team of cheerleaders who were involved in protests like this in the 1970s. We dug deeper into Jesse Owens and the Black and Jewish Coalition of Athletes around the Olympics in the 1930s, which was perfect for this book as we have you know an African-American girl and a Jewish-American girl as the protagonist. And so we kind of went down this rabbit hole that there is this line, this long history of athletes stepping up and being the first and taking the biggest hits for having these conversations and so part of what we wanted to unpack with Lenny was this this notion that despite the fact that they are suffering consistently extreme physical trauma to their bodies that leads to emotional trauma and, you know, leads them into systems of, you know, neurodivergency, they still are standing up, speaking up, and fighting for other people, which is a beautiful thing about athlete-activists.
2: You were- inspired by Colin Kaepernick's Taking the Knee in 2016, am I correct? Is that when you decided that your next book would be about athletes and activism?
1: I think that was right around the right time frame, yes. How
2: did last summer's reckoning with racial injustice and the tragedies that occurred, how did that reckoning affect you and the way this story ends.
1: That's a beautiful question and and we grappled with that very hard last summer. We were we had completed writing the book already and we were in the editing process with our editor When the national conversation began to change. I don't want to say it changed because I don't believe that conversation is complete yet. But it was the first time that we saw the professional leagues begin to speak in a different way about social justice, demands for social justice by their athletes. We did see the NFL make more positive statements. We did see you know, the NBA and the WNBA shut down in the middle of their playoffs to reckon with what was happening in the country. And we had to stop and think, are we gonna to try to write that reaction into the book? Ultimately, we did not, because when we we did a lot of research, as Ken mentioned, about the history of athletes and activism in this country dating back 100 years, and one moment in particular really struck us, and that's Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Peter Norman, who's the third man on the podium in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. I think through the lens of history, we remember that moment as a triumphant moment, as a powerful moment, as a grand statement. But at the time, John Carlos and Tommy Smith were stripped of their medals. They were sent home in disgrace. Peter Norman was treated like a pariah in Australia, even though he he set an Australian record. As late as 2000, he was not invited to come to the opening ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And what we really wanted to showcase was, although through the lens of history, we might view these things positively, in the moment, the athletes suffer real consequences, career ending consequences in the case of Kaepernick and others. And we wanted to honor that because you have to grapple with how it happened at the time, not only when it's changing, but also when it is at its most difficult
0: honestly, it was really, for me, just a continuation of the conversation. Because although there was a global reckoning that happened, this was not a new conversation for people in the African American community. This was just like a, oh, now you guys see it kind of thing for us. Because one of the other greatest influence of this book is the Kennesaw cheerleaders. And the Kennesaw cheerleaders were young women who took a knee in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick several years ago. And I had the privilege um, in 2017 to march with them and meet them and have a conversation with them around the time when we started to think about writing this book and and what this concept could look like on the page. And these women suffered severe consequence for that decision. They initially were not no longer allowed to take the field, but several of them lost their scholarships. And that's right here in Georgia at Kennesaw State. And so even though the civil unrest of 2020 put a spotlight on things, I was having this conversation with these girls in 2017. This was during a march against police brutality that was taking place here in Atlanta in 2017. So a lot of times for the African-American community, um, when we talk about the civil unrest of 2020, we're like, no, that's when the rest of the world started having this conversation. This is a conversation we have been having since King.
2: Authors Kimberly Jones and Gilly Siegel, their new young adult novel is Why We Fly. They'll be at the Decatur Book Festival tomorrow. And you can learn more on our website, wabe.org citylights City Lights. Just ahead on City Lights, we'll celebrate Jimmy Carter's 97th birthday with the filmmakers of Jimmy Carter Rock and Roll President. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright says, Thank you for listening. Today is former President Jimmy Carter's 97th birthday. He has spent his life working to secure peace, reduce poverty, fight disease, and protect the environment, no matter the political cost. Last year, a documentary was released exploring a lesser-known aspect of President Carter, his intense love of music. Jimmy Carter, rock and roll president, chronicles the profound impact musicians such as Bob Dylan, Greg Allman, and Willie Nelson had on President Carter. When the film was released last year, I spoke with director Mary Wharton and producer Chris Farrell, and to celebrate President Carter's birthday on City Lights. We'll listen back to that interview now. Chris Farrell starts our conversation by explaining why he and Mary Wharton wanted to make this documentary.
4: Mary and I, who have been friends for you know 20 years, had been talking about working on projects together. And then I came along a, uh, an Allman Brothers idea uh, and myself and a, and a few guys were working on that. And as part of that research, uh, I was speaking to a financier in Atlanta, and he said, "You know, you really should come down here and talk to these gentlemen that were in the that served in the Carter White House because they know a ton about Greg Allman and the Allman Brothers and the Allman Brothers put put, put Jimmy Carter in the White House." So I was, I was fairly intrigued. So I went down to see Peter Conlin and Tom Beard, who had worked in the White House, and they told me these fantastic stories about about the Allman brothers and and that relationship and just how close Greg Allman and and president Carter were. And so I get up to leave. I was very gracious and, you know, thankful for their time. And they said, well, but do you want to hear about Bob Dylan and Jimmy Carter? (laughs) And I said, "Um, well, that's not what I'm here for, but that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. Tell me about it. And they just regaled me with like these stories that I was, you know, dumbfounded. I just, again, I, I, like to think i know a fair amount about music but i had just never heard those stories and once again i decided okay i've overstayed my welcome i'll i'll leave now and thank you very much and they said well what about willie nelson and, and jimmy carter and i was just by this time i was like you got to be kidding me so <laughs> i had gone down with the with the very clear intention of of, of working on the allman brothers but through their stories um I decided, you know, this is this is the genesis of something that I really want to do and I want to explore and I want to develop. And I I called Mary, you know, I, and to be honest with you, there's always revisionist history. I can't remember if I called her like the second I got out of the meeting, you know, on the way to the hotel, in the hotel, but, but you know, she was she was definitely my first call because, again, you know, the respect that I have for her and, and, and our friendship and wanting to do something. And I thought that this was something that we, you know, we've been away from the South for a long time, but as Southerners, you know, there's a sensibility, that the musical angle, but there's also a broader story that we wanted to tell as well.
2: Before we go into President Carter's connection with Bob Dylan, the deep connection he felt and continues to feel with his music, I want to ask, how did you get Dylan to appear on camera. I mean, he wouldn't go pick up his Nobel Prize in person. Yeah. Who's responsible for that?
3: Well, I have to give full credit where it's due to our writer, Bill Flanagan. And when Chris first came to me with this project and we started talking about, well, how are we going to get this done? And we knew that we were going to need to get Dylan, and he has not done any interviews uh, over the past 30 years except for, you know, for his films about himself. So Bill Flanagan is a very respected music writer and is quite friendly with uh, Dylan, has done a number of interviews with him and has a great relationship with his manager, Jeff Rosen. And I knew that he was the one person that I knew that, that would get us a shot at getting an interview with Dylan. And, and he all throughout was, you know, never made any promises and, and said, I don't know, but, you know, I'll try. And, and he also, through all of his, you know, friendships and connections with a, a number of amazing musicians. He brought Roseanne Cash to the film. He brought Paul Simon and Jimmy Buffett and Bono. And, um, you know, those are all really major artists that bring a lot to it. And, And one of the things that Chris and I are really proud of is the really eclectic nature of the cast. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of star power, but also a lot of really You know, interesting and smart people from all different kinds of backgrounds. You know, when do you see Bob Dylan and Madeleine Albright in the same film? Uh, (laughs) uh, Along with the head of the Episcopalian Church, Bishop Michael Curry. I mean, so yeah, Dylan was definitely quite a catch.
2: The film opens with a clip of Carter's speech at the 1976 Democratic National Convention in which he quotes Bob Dylan. Would you discuss the deep connection Jimmy Carter has with Dylan's music?
3: I think it's really rich and and it's something that, you know, Carter talked about way back in, I want to say it was, you know, 74 or something like that uh when he was governor of Georgia he he started you know, talking about Bob Dylan and Carter's son, Chip, who's in the film, who introduced him to the music of Bob Dylan. You know, Jimmy Carter is not a a baby boomer. He wasn't of the generation that would have, you know, naturally gravitated towards Dylan's music. But his son, who was a teenager at the time, introduced him to this music and he started listening to it. And he has said uh, many times that even as a as a farmer's son and growing up on a peanut farm, that it wasn't until he heard Bob Dylan's song, Maggie's Farm, that he truly understood the plight of the farm workers. And it opened his eyes, I think, in a lot of ways. And Carter, as we all know, is a great humanist. And he has always, opened his heart to humanity and in the film madeline albright credits that about him as to one of the things that allowed him to be able to make peace between warring countries like he achieved with the middle east peace accord you know and that he he was able to understand other people and understand what they needed but, but going back to his affinity for Dylan's music, he, he, you know, Jimmy Carter is also a poet, which is something that not a lot of people know about him, but he's published several volumes of poetry. And I think that he appreciates the poetry of Dylan's lyrics.
4: You know, there are a number of themes that we tried to capture, you know, hope, the power of music, you know, the goodness of this, this man, you know, we try to make some social commentary but you know one of the things that we were really trying to, to capture as well is to try to understand why you know and Dylan is the example that you just gave, but why these musicians you know it's not uncommon for us to be fans of musicians or you know, have you know, for, for them to have our adulation. but it's pretty rare for musicians to return that adulation you know, to other, to other people and particularly politicians and they all and they really all do. Care about him and 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 hold him in high regard, and you know, through discovery, it's it's just obvious that you know one is because he's such a genuine person, he's so real, um, and I think that that's what drew that you know that's what that connection is, and also he just he's a real fan. I mean, he truly, truly, you know, some people, and I'm not you know I'm not naming names, or you know, some people will take on theme songs during their campaigns. All of a sudden, they're the biggest Bruce Springsteen fan, or you know, fill in the blank. But Jimmy Carter, this was a lifelong love of music.
2: Would you talk about the footage and the narrative you give to his inaugural gala?
3: Oh, it was, I mean, there, there were so many that we didn't, that we couldn't even, you know, we, we couldn't spend, you know, too much time in that one moment. But, you know, there were lots of lots of people at that concert Linda Ronstadt performed I actually forget all the people that that were there that night but we we chose two clips because of President Carter saying that that two of his favorite performers were Aretha Franklin and Paul Simon and they were the the top of his list of, of the artists that he wished would be part of his concert and and naturally they both did and that Aretha performance. <sighs> It, oh my god it's it's a revelation right
2: <laughs> well it, it it is so exquisite i mean I've been a fan of her since I was a teenager and uh, to hear her her voice so pure acapella in that god bless America it's luminous i mean i I was so grateful to witness that in the film
3: God bless America
0: America
4: From the
2: light,
4: from
0: above.
2: And then, of course, the shots of the audience are pretty dazzling, too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of people there. John Lennon and Yoko Ono, um, Muhammad Ali, Red Fox. I did a comedy act as part of the show. John Wayne, Paul Newman.
2: (laughs) The film conveys a great deal about Carter's connection to the Allman brothers, How did the band help put Jimmy Carter in the White House?
4: Well, the uh, I mean, as as the film shows, Phil Walden, who was the manager for the Allman Brothers, had gone to them and said, you know, this is a guy that I I respect and, you know, think is a good guy. And, you know, he's, he's, quote, one of us. And I think we should get behind him. And, um, you know, to listen to Chuck Lavelle and others tell the story, you know, they, they it didn't take a lot of convincing. I mean, they really did admire and respect Carter. And, and, it, and there was a mutual respect, you know, uh, amongst them. So they agreed to, you know, lend their sort of voice, if you will, um, and sort of endorsement, which was great. As Jan Winter talks about, you know, young people, you know, the biggest rock band in the, in the country was endorsing Jimmy Carter. And so that was, you know, that, that meant a lot. But but more specifically, they were willing to do these concerts. And at that time, the way that the uh, campaign finance laws work, you could get the, uh, you know, if the All Brothers played a concert and had a gate of, I'm just making it up, but $10,000. And they gave that gate or those, uh, you know, that money to the campaign, then the federal government would match. And Carter was way, way, way outspent. He had, you know, no money, not not only relative to the Republican machine, but even Democratic Party. So the Allman Brothers, again, gave him credibility. but They also gave him cash, which was, you know, which was huge.
3: Frank Moore in the film talks about the fact that one of the great things about these concert fundraisers is as opposed to, you know, other forms of fundraising, when you put on a concert, the promoters pay you cash that night. You know, that, that's just the way the music business operates. You don't leave the venue until you have your payment because you've played your show and that's how it works. So the campaign was like, this was amazing. We would get these big bags of cash And, and we would be able to turn in all the receipts so that we could get the federal matching funds, but we could use that money to buy television ads in Pennsylvania the next day, you know, and it was like, it was literally funding the campaign as it went along. Um, And that was crucial uh, to, you know, getting the word out because Carter was a, was a relatively unknown entity outside the South.
2: But his friendship with Greg Allman, it endured. He was not fickle when Allman was going through the worst of his drug problems. This is remarkable.
3: Absolutely. And it goes back to what Chris was saying about the sort of affinity that these musicians had for Carter and it speaks to you know why they were all so willing to come on board and help us out with this movie because they saw that we were had had good intentions with it but Carter is a true friend you know someone that you can count on to be there for you and that you know I'm sure that famous musicians have people fawning all over them all the time and and have lots of people who want to be their friends, but they don't know who to trust. And Jimmy Carter is somebody that you can trust. And that's very rare in any person, let alone a politician.
4: <laughs> Mary, Mary, and I have told this story several times before. I mean, we I would say that we agreed on 90% of everything in the film, you know, as a team. And then there would be times when Mary like felt strongly about something. It's like, okay, Mary, you know, you're right that you, you feel strongly. That that was a story that I felt very strongly about, and Mary was you know very gracious and in, in, in keeping that you know allowing us to keep that in because, I to me it's it's seminal in terms of, it really just is who he is, and whether you put a label on it, that you know that's his Christian you know value, whether that's you know he's a humanist, whether it's just that he's a good individual. I really do think that that story and the arc of that story you know sums it all up in terms of who he is as an individual, and Mary rightly pointed out the other day in another interview, you know not only does he go through all that and risk his political career, but then he wins, and the first guy he has at the White House for dinner is greg Ullman. I mean yeah you know, that's just it's just incredible.
2: The interviews you have with Famous musicians, the testimonials, there's a wonderful intimacy you achieve. I felt like Roseanne Cash was my friend during that movie. I want her over for dinner tomorrow. Totally. <laughs> um, but how, how did you amass all of that fantastic footage? of jimmy carter hanging out with the popular musicians during the 70s and 80s
3: i like to look at it like i'm nancy drew you know when i was a kid i wanted to be a private detective and uh, i was really into like hard-boiled noir private detective novels it's a sort of a treasure hunt where you just dig around in libraries and archives and A lot of times materials from that era are not necessarily labeled properly. So you just have to just go look at stuff. It's interesting. This is the first time that I've done a film about somebody of President Carter's kind of stature where literally everything he did in the four years of his presidency was fully documented by photographs or footage and it would be documented by multiple different people. So, you know, there's the white house photographers and there's the, the Naval Photographic Collection that has all these um, films, and there's all of the three different news archives. So it was a mountain of material that we had to sort through. And even just like little things, like we have a shot in the film of Diana Ross presenting a giant birthday cake to President Carter. And it's just a little like kind of amazingly cute thing (laughs) um but you know when i saw the description of this film and it said you know president carter's birthday diana ross performing i was like "I i don't care i'm paying the money i need to see that and there there's a she she actually does sing happy birthday mr president to him in a way that's amazing and she she goes into like a disco performance of her song, Love Hangover, where she changes the lyrics to make them be about Jimmy Carter. And it's this total surreal and amazing Diana Ross performance that I, I, one of my, you know, I still rue the fact that I was not able to find a way to to work that into the narrative of our story um, because it's amazing.
4: (laughs) There was an embarrassment of riches. I mean, there are a lot of things we you were talking about Horowitz earlier. I mean, there are a lot of lot of great things that were unearthed that um, you know, that just didn't make it. And also, by the way, I mean the the team, like the, archi- the archival team that we had was was incredible as well.
2: Well, President Carter himself has given the documentary the highest praise. What is it like for you? To hear those comments, what was it like when you first heard them?
4: Well, it was quite a journey. I had promised him at the very beginning of all this that, you know, I was going to show him the film, um, you know, b- before he passed away. And I, you know, it was almost this race, race against the clock. Luckily, he's so strong. I mean, he'll probably live another five or ten years. But, um, and and there were times when it, we thought, well, we're not going to be able to do it. And you know, there are a lot of people involved, as you can imagine, a lot of handlers, etc. And it became almost this sort of um, you know, very stealth, very clandestine operation that Mary and I flew to planes and, um, and showed it to him and the first lady, and, and Amy and Chip and, and Jeff. And uh, it, w- it was just, it truly was one of the most special days of my entire life. One, to, you know, to to be able to fulfill that promise and that commitment, but to see his reaction, he, I, I was sitting next to Mary. He was sitting next to Mary. Mary's in between the two of us, and he kept whispering. And you know, he cried during wow. the film. In, and he invite he was in such a good mood afterwards. He invited us to lunch, and we spent you know a couple of hours at lunch with him. And then it came back to us via Amy. That uh, you know, I think he's he's even said in one in several of the quotes that he, that you've seen he would not have changed a thing.
2: Producer Chris Farrell and director Mary Wharton, their documentary Jimmy Carter, Rock and Roll President, is available for streaming on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, HBO, and Vudu. Today is President Carter's 97th birthday. And you can send him a birthday wish via cartercenter.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Monday at 11 a.m., director and producer Zach Ingrassi tells us about his new documentary with Chris Temple, Five Years North. Plus, the Atlanta Design Festival starts this weekend. Producer Elaine DeLeo shares what we can expect as the festival continues throughout the end of next week. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Knavey. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Here's wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.